The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, our scripture reading is from Luke 10 this morning, Luke 10, and we're going to be in verses 21 to 24. Luke 10, 21 to 24. Let's hear God's word. In that same hour, he, that's Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much. Again, that you are a loving, generous Father who draws us to yourself, and you are a communicating Father. You are always speaking. You're speaking uh, in the world that you've made, and you're speaking through this word, Lord. Uh, you want to speak today through your word, Lord, best of all. Give us everything we need to, to hear to the point that as we hear your word, it's like we're seeing it. Um, as we hear your word, it's like we're alive. Um, in what you say, in who you are. We pray that you do that in us. Lord, please help me to teach this faithfully, clearly, truthfully, and give us all, Lord, the, the humility to learn what you have from us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, during my junior year in college, I got to go to Kenya for a semester. It was a, a thrill of my life. And I, had, I have many great memories from that time, but one of my favorites was being able to climb Mount Kenya. If you don't know, Mount Kenya is the second tallest mountain in Africa, and at its highest point, it's about 17,000 feet above sea level. I don't think I was quite there. I was one on... Anyway, I, I climbed what I could climb, right? Uh, two things I remember about the experience of, of summiting that peak. One was the difficulty of the test. It was hard work, and I, I didn't mind the hike, but the thing that's surprising is how difficult the altitude makes it. So as we're at our base camp right before the summit, I'm laying in bed getting ready to do this hike at 2 a.m., and I'm breathing like I had just run a sprint while I'm laying there because the altitude was so, is so high. And so that, that made it a difficult test as we started to try to walk up in the middle of that night. The moon is just right next to you. The stars are brilliant. You're taking like 10 steps, and then you're stopping to breathe. And you're taking another 10 steps, and you're stopping to breathe. It was a difficult test. But the second thing, obviously, about that experience was summiting Mount Kenya as the sun rose on Easter Sunday far above the clouds, and you're just overwhelmed by beauty, overwhelmed by beauty. So those two things, the difficulty of the test, but the overwhelming beauty, that's what I remember from climbing that mountain. And you may be sitting there now saying, well, that's great. Why are you telling us? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you now. In our text this morning, we're climbing a different kind of a mountain. 
We're getting up way into the high air of what makes Jesus rejoice. We're getting way up in the high altitude of seeing the inner workings of God himself. And uh, just like with that mountain, we're going to see things. There's a difficult test in here. The, the, the truth that Jesus is giving, the doctrine he is teaching, the things that make him tick um, are difficult for many of us. And I'll just, I just want to tell you this morning, if you hear this and, and it sounds strange to you or new to you, well, I certainly hope I can convince you that it's, it's not strange or new. It's in the Bible. But I also just want to tell you how much, um, if, if you're like, that was hard for me, I, I wasn't quite tracking. I just want to be like, that's okay. Okay, I love you. I'm just going to tell you, I remember when I first encountered some of these doctrines, how difficult it was for me. Um, And so I will be over there in the corner after the service, and if you have questions or comments or threats or whatever you want to do, I'll be there. I would love to talk to you about this. So there is the difficult test, but, but, there is overwhelming beauty in here. Uh, This is the heart of of reality and the core beauty of what it means to be a Christian, what we're going to see today. Overwhelming beauty. So if you can survive the test, you get to see the view. So we're continuing through our study in the Gospel of Luke. Last week we talked about evangelism, right? If you want to hear that message, it's on the the website. Last week we talked about evangelism. Jesus sent out his disciples to share the message about himself. And as they come back, we see they had a lot of successes They were thankful, but they also had a lot of rejection. You remember Jesus mentions entire cities that rejected him. And so it's so strange that as they mention this uh, rejection, some celebration, in verse 21, do you see what happens? Just immediately following, in that same hour, he, he what? What did he do, church? He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So that word in the Greek means, it means more than just he cracked a smile. It means more than just, oh, that was cool. It's really a, a large word. It's very, he was exceedingly joyful, if you want to say it like that. I, how would you say it on the street? He was so, uh, he was lit. I mean, I don't know. He was, he was so joyful. He was passionately joyful. He was, he was this is Yes, that kind of joyful in the Holy Spirit. And so as we get to this text, you know, here's here's a question. What is it that makes Jesus joyful? What is it that makes him joyful? And as as we ask that question, you might think, well, I was hoping to come hear a sermon about, you know, something for me to to do or how to fix my budget or how to all all, all sorts of good important things. You know what our text is going to be today? Our text is going to be today, what makes God happy? And so already we have to ask, okay, um, how important is this to me? How important is this? Let me ask you this question. So say if you ask me, uh, what, what makes your wife happy? And say I respond to that question with, uh, I don't know. I don't really care. What might you then think? I'm not sure that guy loves his wife. Okay? If you love someone, how important is what makes them really happy? It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Do you love Jesus? Are you going to spend forever with him in his face? Does what makes him really happy matter? Oh, it matters. 
Not only that, Jesus is God. He is divine, which means whatever makes God really happy, that's what's going to be rolling and burning and awesome and happiness forever. Forever. You ever notice how you get happy about different things in different seasons of your life? This used to be rad, and now I kind of don't care anymore. You know, there was a time in my life I spent all my money on baseball cards. That's too bad, okay? I quit like last week. What we love changes. This is the burning joy of forever. So it's so important. It's so important. As I hope to show you, like, this, this is our salvation. So what makes Jesus happy? I'm going to give you three things this morning. Jesus rejoices in triune unity. Second, Jesus rejoices in his Father's sovereignty. Third, Jesus rejoices in his own authority to bless his people. Here we go. I'm going to try to unpack it for you, but just so you have something to hang your hat on. Jesus rejoices in triune unity. Second, Jesus rejoices in his Father's sovereignty. Third, Jesus rejoices in his own authority to bless his people. So friends, I'm so glad you're here. Buckle up. Because <laughs> we're trying to get into the life of the Trinity. All right, number one, first two verses, Jesus rejoices in triune unity. The first two verses, 21 and 22, I just want to pull out some things that would be obvious as we looked at it more and more. Five times in two verses, Jesus mentions his father. Father, 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 father. Five times in two verses. Three times explicitly in two verses. The son, the son. The Son. And then, of course, there's the reference to himself in 21. He rejoiced. The Son is four times. And then, who is the, the Son rejoicing in? The Holy Spirit. And it's just dropping on us right here, reminding us, showing us again, what is God like? God is triune. He's a trinity. We sang it this morning. Blessed trinity. The happy Trinity, yes, the happy Trinity. So what do we mean by that? Well, we mean there's one God and three persons, right? We would want to say the persons are distinct. What do I mean by that? The Trinity doesn't mean um, there's one person who dresses up different at different times in the Bible, okay? You don't get God being the Father in the Old Testament and then God being the Son in the Gospels and then God being the Spirit in the New Testament. No, 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 no. The three persons are distinct. He look around and wink and go, hey, I'm really talking to myself. He's praying to his Father. When he rejoices in the Holy Spirit, this is a fellowship of two distinct persons. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The persons are distinct. Second, they are equal in essence. In essence, so they each are truly, fully, completely, totally everything it means to be God. Sovereign, holy, omnipotent, omniscient. Everything there is to be God is fully and truly existent in each one of those persons. The Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, the Father is God. One God in three persons. So the persons are distinct, the persons are equal in essence, and third, and maybe best of all, they are completely unified in love. Completely unified in love. Now, you won't be alone if you say, I find the concept of the Trinity 
perplexing, okay? And many horrible examples have been given to people to help explain it, and I won't use them because I think they're horrible. If you find the Trinity perplexing, hey, at least take pleasure in this. Don't you think God would be a little more rich, a little more deep, a little more complex than we're able to quite comprehend? I mean, actually, doesn't this help you a little bit? Because what if you were like, oh, I totally have God down? Easy. In my pocket. Look, okay, you're, you're really nice and smart people. If you've totally mastered God, whatever it is you've mastered, it ain't God. So God is, whoa, right? We're taking a step back. Whoa, I'm, I'm getting the concepts. It's not a contradiction. Certainly there's mystery. We find it perplexing. Let me tell you, friends, Jesus finds it exceedingly joyful. The life of the Trinity is Jesus' joy. His joy in trying unity. Listen, let's remember. What does Jesus call God when he prays him? What did he call him here five times? Father. What should that word mean? Source of life. There's a control and provision. Provision and love. Love. Do you remember Jesus' baptism? Okay, So for Jesus in his human nature, his baptism is like, it's time to get started. So it's time to publicly become the Messiah. It's time to take on hatred and suffering and pressure. It's time. It's time to take on the mantle. And so as he goes to his, his baptism, it's so beautiful. Remember, who came? Look at Luke 3.22. Luke 3.22, this is at Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form, and a voice came from heaven. And what did the voice say? You are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. How does the Father feel about the Son? Loves him. He's been loving him from all eternity. He is satisfied in his Son. With you, I'm well pleased. And so as the Son is facing this moment, the Father's presence is there with the Son in the person of the Holy Spirit. And his public affirmation is, you are my son, I love you. So dads, we can take a lesson from this, can't we? Take a lesson about being present, about being verbal, about loving our sons and our daughters. But this is way more than human parenting. This is triune love. And this totally frames Jesus' perspective about himself and what he's doing. Look at how Jesus talks in John 17, 24. John 17, 24. He's praying to God for his people. If you're a Christian, he's praying for you. Look at this verse. What does he call God? Again, 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have what? Given me. There's a group of people the Father has given the Son. I desire that they whom you've given me may be with me where I am. What's his prayer for you? That you would be? With him, with him, it's relational, it's fellowship, that you may be with him where he, am to, where he is to see what? What's he want you to see? His glory. <laughs> now, if anybody else said this, you should spit. You should mock, you know, hey, you want to come over for lunch? I just want you to be with me where I am so that you can see my glory. <laughs> okay? <laughs> no, nah, dude, no. You don't have glory like that. Stop. 
That's disgusting. But Jesus can say it. In fact, he has to say it if he loves you. He has to say it if he loves you. Because the greatest thing you can see is his glory. And look at what he says. I want you to see my glory, Father, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is radiant in his glory of the Father's love. This frames his life, his perspective. Salvation is for Jesus to take you to see and know and feel and experience the Father's love for the Son. Do you realize this? This isn't a sideline theological, oh, that's interesting, Trinitarian stuff. No, this is, this is it. This is it. This is heaven. Triune love. And so we see the Father loves and glorifies the Son. He wants everybody to, to see who the Son is. He wants everybody to know the delights in the Son. Well, how do you think the Son responds to the Father? The Son loves and glorifies the Father. Look at John 14, 31. John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? What does he want you to know? So that you can know I love my Father. What's he want you to know? He loves his Father. As you see, his incredible obedience, his submission, his lifestyle, you should be going, he loves his Father. Wow. And he loves the glory of his Father. In John 12, this next verse, this is a context where Jesus is specifically talking about the cross. And he says, now is my soul troubled. Yeah, I guess so. I'm going to the cross. And what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? And the answer to that is no. For this purpose I have come to this hour. And now what's Jesus' goal in the cross? What is it? What does he say? What does he want? Father, what? Glorify your name. I will go to the cross for your glory. Are you seeing what's happening? The Father loves the Son and wants to glorify him. The Son loves the Father and wants to glorify him. And what does the Spirit do? Well, we could go, there's, there's so many texts, I'm just going to come to one. Look at what Jesus says in John 16, 13. The Spirit is the person of the love between the Father and the Son. Read it in Romans, read it in Galatians. When the Spirit comes on you, what does your heart say? Abba, Father. It's the Spirit of the Son who enables you to love the Father like the Son loves the Father. And know the love of the Father like the Son knows the love of the Father. And the Spirit is the person who cultivates that love. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then there's verse 14. What's the Spirit going to do? He will glorify me. The Trinity, distinct in person, one unified God loving and glorifying one another. And this is the heart of all life. This is the goal of all history. Triune love. I'll give you this quote from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says, Both the holiness and the happiness of the Godhead consists in this love. Just pause for a second. God is happy because God is triune. When are you happiest? When you're with the person you love and in unity, right? God is triune and God is always happy in himself because the Father is always satisfied in the Son and the Son always delights in the Father and the Spirit is always the person of their love. God is happy. Edwards continues, all creaturely holiness consists essentially and summarily in love to God, right? The major command 
and love to others, the second command. So, Edward says, does the holiness of God consist in his love, especially in the perfect and intimate union and love there is between the Father and the Son. How many of y'all have heard that God is love? Right? You drive around southern states and every church has a little sign, right? And they change them around. Sometimes they try to make funny jokes. But the most common phrase you'll see, God is love. And I want to ask you something. I want to ask you something. If God was monopersonic, one person, like, like some religions say that he is, if he's one person before creation and he's love, what's he doing? Being lonely? Buying out all the eternal Kleenex? Because he's love and he's nobody to love? He's singing that song, I just need somebody to love. And that God is weak and handicapped and, and unable to even be happy in himself. And so he needs, he needs, he desperately needs creation so that finally he can be loved. Which means, really, he's looking to us nearly to be a God to him, to finally complete what he needs because he was lonely. Friends, is that the Christian God? Is that our God? No, God is love. And he was perfectly happy, satisfied way before creation. Eternally, he, he actually in himself, apart from creation, is love. He is love, the Father to the Son, the person of the Spirit. And so when he creates, he does not create out of need or out of loneliness. He creates out of overwhelming satisfaction to share the love that he is already overflowing with. It's a fundamental difference about God. By the way, just, you know, if you think the Trinity is irrelevant, why, why is the cruelest thing you can do to a prisoner in prison? What is it? What's the cruelest thing you can do? Solitary confinement, isolation. If, if, if babies don't receive love and community, what will happen to them? They will die. Why is it that we cannot be human without community? We are made in the image of God. God is community. This is what Jesus is rejoicing in. I love my Father's love for me. He's rejoicing in the unity of triune love. And this is our salvation. This is our heaven. Second thing Jesus rejoices in, the Father's sovereign grace. Verse 21, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Now what does he say about his Father next, that phrase? Lord of heaven and earth. He is joyful in his father and his father's love. And the attribute of his father that he loves and delights in right now is his father's what? Lordship or sovereignty. Father, I love that you are totally, absolutely, completely, and always in control. I love you for that, Father. He doesn't see the father's sovereignty as uh, fatalistic. I'm just a robot. He's all in charge all the time, and what I do doesn't matter. He doesn't see that that way at all. It gives him joy in what he's doing to know that his father is always in control. You are Lord. This is Jesus' joy. Friends, is it your joy? Is it your joy that your father is always in control? He's Lord of heaven and earth. Romans 11:36. 36. It's a part of what God 
what it means for God to be God that he's in control. 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. What, what, what thing is he not in control of? If from him, through him, and to him are all things. He's in control of them all. And what's the point? To him be the? The glory. Jesus loves this. But Jesus says, Father, your sovereignty also means that you're sovereign over salvation. Sovereign over salvation. Now remember in context, Jesus just sent his disciples out to share the gospel. They got some good results. What else did they get as they went out to share the gospel? Lots of rejection. Entire towns rejected Jesus. In fact, if you remember this, is there anyone who's more rejected than Jesus? Has there ever, has there ever been anybody who's more loving, more sacrificial, more kind, more generous, and more rejected than Jesus? No one's ever been more rejected than Jesus. His own people rejected him to the point of crucifixion. Now, I just want to ask you, how is it that Jesus is handling the rampant refusal of his own people? How is it that he's handling it? Because he's rejoicing right now in the context of rejection. Is Jesus saying, Father, I just... I tried to save them, but I failed and I'm sorry. Is that what he's saying? Is the father saying, boy, I, I love you, son, but I, maybe I should have chosen someone else because we just couldn't get it done? Is the spirit saying, I just couldn't, I couldn't change them. I couldn't convince them. Is that what's happening here? No, in the context of rejection, Jesus is praising and rejoicing in the sovereignty of his Father. Now remember, I told you that climbing this mountain has a tough test to it. It's a tough test. Here's the test. Verse 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, now just so you know, I'm not making this up. Will you read that next word to me? That you have what? Hidden these things. Who's hiding things? The Father is hiding himself. The Father is hiding himself. As people are rejecting Jesus, it's not that God is failing. It's that God is judging. He's judging. And here's the test. I mean, you you might say, wait, hold up. Are you telling me in this verse that God hides himself from some and reveals himself to others? And that he chooses when to hide it and when to reveal it? Is that what you're saying, Matt? And I want to say to you, that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. And I know what your heart would say. I know this is what my heart has said. That's not fair. That's not fair. How can you choose to reveal yourself to this person for salvation and not that person? That's not fair. And I'll just tell you what I've had to... Listen, what does fairness mean? What does, what does it mean to be fair? In, in, most, in most cases in life, human beings, to be just, to be ethical, God tells us to be fair. Right? You're made in the image of God. You deserve value and respect and honor. Uh, we, we should care very deeply about being fair. So when we ask, what do people deserve from us? Let me just make it real clear that, you know, what do people deserve from us as God's people? 
They deserve love, right? Love your enemy. What do people deserve for us? Fairness, justice, love. Okay, what do people deserve from God? The world that we are entitled, entitled for God to always love us and make us happy and give us everything we've ever wanted, despite however we may have thought about him or cared about him or treated him. We're entitled to some sort of... uh, His blessing to us all the time. And I just wonder, let's ask the question, does God owe you that? And how would you know? Does God owe you that? You know, biblically, experientially, the Bible tells us, I think it's the easiest doctrine to prove, we've all sinned. Haven't you? Haven't you sinned? Haven't you looked at the beautiful triune God and said, I don't want you to be God in my life? Haven't you even looked at his sovereign control and said, get out of my way. I want to be in control. Haven't you even looked at his law and said, I don't want your law. I want to do what I think is right and best for me in this moment. I'm telling you here, I have sinned. I've sinned against God in many ways in what I've done and what I haven't done. And my lack of love for him, my lack of love for you. I've sinned a lot. And the Bible's justice is that I deserve God's just wrath and anger. That's what I deserve. So friends, what we need to see here is the last thing we want is for God to be fair. Because God, if God is fair, guess what we all get? Justice. And you know, you think about the Trinity. And what was, what was Jesus' great delight? Do you remember? What was Jesus' great delight? His Father. Okay? Uh, I delight in my kids. That's one of my great delight. I love my kids. Okay, if you've got kids, you probably delight in those. If you have a grandkid, I know you especially delight in those. Okay, watch out, right? So especially those of you with grandkids. Say I came up to you and I was like, I really like you. Can't stand your grandkid. How's it going to roll for our friendship? Is that going to be challenging? Okay. Oh, I like you. I don't like your family. Okay. How can we go to the father and be like, Oh, I like you. Hate Jesus. Okay. The father's eternal delight is in his son. He's quite happy and content there. He doesn't need any of us. And so for the world to say, I don't like you. And Jesus is like, you don't like my father? And, and, to, and for the world to say to Jesus, we don't like you, but we like God. And the father's like, no. Okay. We deserve God's rejection. When God is hiding himself... He's giving people what they deserve. And if you look at the, the phrase Jesus gives for the ones that God is not choosing and God is not revealing himself to, did you see who it was? The wise and understanding. There's a little bit of, what would you say, sarcasm in this? They don't like God because they're so wise. Is that wise? They, they don't want Jesus because they're so understanding? Do they understand? It's, uh, no, we don't want you. Uh, he hides himself. Jesus is rejoicing in God's sovereignty in salvation, but he has a, he has a, secondary, a second joy that's greater. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The Father does love to reveal himself. And he reveals himself to whom? Little children. Why does, 
He's not being literal here, although there are certainly some little children to whom the Father has revealed himself. But that's, he's not being literal here. What is it, why does he call the one group that's rejected the wise and understanding and the other group that's accepted the children? Well, what can children do to uh, earn, deserve? Uh, how capable are they on their own? The word here is for those who are absolutely helpless and are humble. Helpless and humble. And God reveals himself to those. And Jesus says, I love that about you, Father. I love that about you, that you reveal yourself to the helpless. For this was your gracious, and what does he say? Will. Gracious is love you don't deserve, right? Love you don't deserve. Love you what? Don't deserve. So God is going way above over justice here. He's going into love that people don't deserve. And who does God have to love when they all don't deserve it? No one. So then who is it? What's the reason whoever gets loved gets loved? Father, it was your gracious what? Will. What does that mean? That means it's what he wants. He loves who he wants. Some people might say that's not the heart of God. That's not God as I know him. I understand how that feels. But look at Exodus 33, 18. Exodus 33, 18. This amazing section in Scripture where Moses actually physically encounters God's glory. Exodus 33, 18. Moses said, what does he say? Please show me your glory. Verse 19, God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. What's his name? The Lord. And then he gives this proposition about himself. You want to see my glory? Here's an idea for you. I will be gracious to whom? To whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom? To whom I will show mercy. Who gets grace? None of us can say, God, I deserve your grace. We, we, can't, we don't. So then who gets it? It's the one God wants to give it to. He is sovereign So you might say, wait a second, if he's sovereign, how is it that he can hold us responsible? Great question. Read Romans 9. I don't know the answer, to be honest with you. I'll just tell you this. He does. In the Bible, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are both true. And the tension is the balance. It's a mystery how God can be sovereign and we are still responsible. But please, my friends, as we look at this text, let us not do what so many do and make a fake God with no sovereignty so that we can keep the daydream that we're the ones in control. We're not. He is sovereign. And remember, what is Jesus doing with this idea right now? He's rejoicing in his Father's sovereign grace. I feel like I should give you one reason why this is so important. One reason from Scripture why this is so important. So I want to look at you, look with you super briefly at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says almost the exact same thing here as we're seeing in Luke. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you <laughs> were what? Wise according to earthly standards, worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Is that like a backhanded compliment or something? Okay. 
Y'all are, you know, I love you, but you're not that impressive. (laughs) Verse 27, but God, what's the next word? Chose. You weren't impressive, and he chose you. He chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world. Why? To shame the strong. When he looks at us in our self-righteousness, oh, I deserve it, I can do it, I don't need you, God, maybe you can help me on salvation, but I'll do a lot. I'm going to choose the weak and the foolish. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. God chose what is low. God what? Chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are. Here's the purpose. So that no human being might what? Boast in the presence of God. And because of him, the Father, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that is written, let the one who boasts, boast where? Boast in the Lord. You see, if, if we flip this around and we say, God, you, you made love and salvation possible, but I've got, I, I choose it. I do it. If you make it possible, but I do it, then, then I come and it's like, oh, I came and got what you had for me. And then those other people, they didn't. And so what do I have now? Oh, I guess I was wiser, smarter, more ethical. I'm better than you. Do you see what's happening? Self-righteousness, because I did it. And I could stand in God's presence and be like, man, God, uh, I thank you so much that I was such a good person and made all the right choices. And, and what am I doing all of a sudden? Boasting. I'm boasting. I'm prideful. I'm self-righteous. And what has God just told us? He's ordained salvation in such a way that who gets to boast in themselves? Nobody gets to boast No one. There's only one person who gets all the glory and all the praise. And it is our triune God. Father, you chose me. Jesus, you lived and died and rose for me. Spirit, you awakened my heart. Who? God does. God does. And this is Jesus' delight, remember? He loves to glorify his father. This is the father's delight. He loves to, glo- to, to glorify his son. This is the spirit's work to glorify the father and the son. The, beauty, the beautiful part is it, of it is if you realize you're humble and you don't have anything and you can't save yourself and your sin is too great and you're not smart enough and you're not powerful enough and you don't do it right enough, guess what? This is really good news. God's strength overpowers all of that. And you're loved. Jesus rejoices in trying unity. Jesus rejoices in his Father's sovereign grace. Last one, Jesus rejoices in his authority to bless his people. Back in Luke 10, Luke 10, 22, amazing statements, Jesus says, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. That's just an incredible line, isn't it? Sometimes people will tell you, Jesus never claims to be God. In the Gospels. I agree, never claims to be a new God. But can you imagine a line like this? God has given me everything. Everything. It's all mine. And no one really knows me except God. No one can actually know me like the Father does, Jesus says here. And no one knows the Father, he says, except the Son. How much God do you have to be to truly know the Father God? He's infinite. To match that, to know that, you must be just as God. 
Father and the Son. And he's, he's, he's rejoicing in his unique placement as the beloved eternal Son of God. You see it? Verse 22. All things have been handed over me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is, really, except the Father. Or who the Father is, except the Son. And finish that one off for me. Anyone to whom the Son, what? Chooses to reveal him. Then Jesus, verse 23, turns to his disciples and says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. What does it mean for Jesus to reveal the Father? I mean, anybody could hear the words, God is triune. Uh, could hear the words he likes to show his father. But is, just he, is, is it just hearing the words? Is that what it means to have the father revealed to you? Oh, no. Oh, no. For Jesus to reveal the father to you is for Jesus to bring you in so that his father is your father. For Jesus to reveal the Father to you is to bring you so into himself so that you are now in the flood of the Father's love for the Son. You remember what we sang in the, in the song this morning? You have loved us like, remember? You love your Son. It's not a joke. It's to be brought into Christ so completely that the Father's that you are in the the torrent of the Father's love for the Son and can return it as such. When the Spirit comes upon you, Romans and Galatians, what does your heart cry out? Abba, what? Father. And who is it that gets to reveal the unique Father? It's Jesus. And who does Jesus reveal the Father to? Whoever he chooses does everybody get to have Jesus? Does everybody deserve to have Jesus' father as his or her father? Or is it grace like you can't quite possibly imagine? I mean, think about this that I, a wretched, rebellious sinner, and just a just a creature too, would be able to claim the holy God of the universe who's perfect and blameless and righteous and beyond compare, that I would be able to look towards him and actually say the word. Father, apart from Jesus Christ, do you know what a, how, how ridiculous that is? How, how I could never get close. I mean, how dare I say such a thing? And yet, when Jesus and the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. What's Jesus' second word? Our Father. You've got to get this, people, he says. You've got to get it. I've made my Father your father. He's your father. How does this work? How does this work? How does he reveal it to us? You know, I think there's two ways to rebel against God. Two ways to rebel against God. One is the break the rules, and that's what we think of usually when we think about rebellion. The break the rules person. Break the rules. So think about what that means when, when, we, when we break the rules. You say, to heck with you, God, to heck with your rules. We're saying, aren't we, God is not a good father whose boundaries are wise and trustworthy and he doesn't have my best interests in mind. Isn't that what we're saying? When we rebel by breaking the rules, our heart is saying, God, you're a jerk of a father. 
Wasn't that Satan's first temptation? You know, did God really say? He's a jerk. The second way to rebel against God is to keep all the rules. Did you know that? The second way to rebel against God is to keep all the rules. And it's the idea that God isn't earn it. You better earn it. You better keep them and keep them perfectly. Then if you do the right things, he'll finally owe you the love. And then you could even control him a little bit because he'll owe you because you kept all the rules. But don't you see you're still rebelling against God because what's the heart saying to that God where you have to obey just right to finally earn the love? God, you're a jerk of a father. It's the same heart in the rule-breaking rebel as it is with the self-righteous religious person. It's the same heart. And we each need Jesus to reveal the Father. Look at 1 John 4. 1 John 4. I'm going to look at 8 to 11. 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why, folks? Because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And we've seen, what, how, what, is it, what does it mean that God is love? He's triune. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit is the person of that love who applies that love. God is love. But then in verse 9, John says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. And what does that phrase mean, made manifest? It's kind of a churchy phrase. Shown, illustrated, proven. The lights shine on it. You see it and go, oh, that's his love. It, boom, there it is. In this, the love of God was made manifest. How do you know the Father's heart of love? Where can you see it? That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Do you see it? Do you see that God sent his eternal beloved son into the world to take on flesh? A rebellious sinner could live through the son that he loves. What love is it that the father has sent his son? Even more. Verse 10, 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not what? Not that we have loved God. If you want to see a picture of love, don't look at our love for God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he, what? Loved us and sent his son to be the, everybody say it with me even though you don't know how, propitiation for our sins. It's a word we want to keep, propitiation, substitutionary sacrifice, substitutionary. Everybody say, in my place, in my place, in my place, he went to the cross in your place. The Son of God who owes you wrath for all the way you've denied the Father has instead taken upon himself the wrath you deserve for denying the Father that he loves. The Father who owes you wrath for denying the Son has instead put his wrath that he owes on you for denying the Son on the Son. So that in the Son all the wrath is gone. 
It's paid for on the cross. And all that's left now is you united to Jesus Christ. And God's title to you now, his relationship to you now is what? Father. He loves you with the same love that he loves the Son of God because you are united to the Son of God through faith. When you see that, when you trust that, Jesus has revealed the Father to you. He's shown you. Do you see how blessed you are? And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples, right? Blessed are you. Do you see how blessed you are? What did you deserve from God? What has he given you? His son. To the point that his son goes to the cross so that you could be called a child of God. And John can't handle it. 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. I don't know where else to go, John says. I can't, I can't take you any higher. This is the highest part of the mountain. You're a child of God through Jesus Christ. So, what do you do with this? What do we do with this? This view of triune love. Well, first of all, let's humble ourselves, right? Humble ourselves before a sovereign God. Humble ourselves. And let's humble ourselves before the cross. Do you see what he's done there? And if, if this is new for you and you're like, I don't even know if I know God like this, I want you to know this is an invitation. Come, uh, repent of other kings, other gods, repent of sin, turn to Jesus, trust in him, and this is yours. This is yours. You're forgiven. You are loved. You are adopted. The moment you trust yourself to Jesus... But not only do we humble ourselves, the second thing we do is we rejoice. We rejoice. You know, at first when you, you trust the gospel and you, you hear about God's love and you're amazed, but when you hear a text like this, you realize you didn't start to get loved when you trust the gospel. It's not like Jesus came up and said, oh, I love you if you believe this. Let's see what you can do. This text shows you that when you found the gospel beautiful, who Jesus is, and you realized your sin and you wanted to know God as your father. This text shows you, you've been loved a long time. Who is it that enabled you to see? I mean, the glory of sitting here and knowing that the father has said, I want you. And you say, why? Why? What have I, what have I done? How am I better? You say, you're looking in the wrong place. It's my grace. I've chosen you by my grace. Do you realize how loved you are? Not really. Me neither. But more than you think. When you didn't believe in God or you couldn't earn his love, the Father chose to reveal this to you and Jesus chose to reveal the Father to you and the Spirit even now if you're trusting this is working that love in you. And I don't care what's going on in your life. I do care because we hurt, we suffer, we need one another. But in comparison, I don't care what's going on in your life. If you have the triune God 
The Father of all saying, you are my child, and Jesus saying, that's my brother and my sister, and the Spirit holding you together. Come on, how blessed are you? What else do you need? And guess what you're going to look at and enjoy forever and ever and ever. You will stand in the waterfall of the flood of God's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and you're in it. Seeing and loving his beauty. Remember what we read, Psalm 65, verse 1 and verse 4? Praise is due to you, O God. What, what should you do when you see his sovereign grace in your life? Praise him from the heart with your mouth. Praise him. And then look at verse 4. Blessed, happy, satisfied. Blessed is the one, what? You choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. What's our future, people? We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Let's pray. Father, um, we're amazed. We're floored. Maybe we're angry and frustrated. I don't know. But I pray, Lord God, that whatever is good that I've said, that your Holy Spirit would work it into us. And we ask you, Father, that as we humble ourselves before you, that you would reveal yourself to us as children. Jesus, that you would be pleased to reveal the Father to us, and we thank you that for so many of us, you have. Show us more. Show us more, and let us rejoice like Jesus does in the beauty of triune love, the sovereign lordship of our Father, and the great massive blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. It's for his glory we pray. Everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.